You're listening to the EFC Podcast. Leif Anderson has led the National Association of Evangelicals in the United States for more than 13 years. He retires the end of 2019. The NAE, like the EFC in Canada, represents evangelicals, just a whole lot more of them. There are 40,000 churches and millions of evangelicals in the States represented by the NAE. I'm Karen Stiller, and I really enjoyed my conversation with Leif. We touched on the label evangelical, how politics and faith coexist so differently in our two countries, and his heart for the church and the pastors he meets. We hope you'll enjoy this interview. So Leif, the NAE represents 40,000 churches and millions of believers, and it seems to me that that has to mean there's a lot of diversity within the evangelical movement, but I think there's the perception out there that we're all alike, especially, I think, uh, with American evangelicals these days. Can you speak to that? Are we all alike? Is it a diverse movement? Well, Karen, in some ways we're all alike. In other ways, we're not much alike at all. So just a quick short page of history. The National Association of Evangelicals started in 1943 when in the United States and elsewhere, there was sort of a polarization between liberals on the left and fundamentalists on the right. And evangelicals saw themselves in the middle. And so when the NAE was started, we brought together just broad diversity of evangelical theology, Baptists, Presbyterians, Salvation Army, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, Reformed, Arminian. So therefore, a lot of diversity in evangelical theology, but not so much racial and ethnic diversity, although that's changing. So the growing edge of America is uh, in diversity in terms of many things, but evangelicalism as well, in terms of traditionally minority groups. I don't know if that really answers your question, but yeah, it depends on which type of diversity you're talking about. I find, you mentioned uh, evangelicals sort of being in the middle between liberals and fundamentalists, and again, we're using these labels, which I know can be problematic, but I do find there is still confusion sometimes uh, between evangelicals and fundamentalists. Do you encounter that? I do. And the definition is in the mind of the speaker. So sometimes people use the words interchangeably. I would not choose to do that. But labels are always confusing. And that's just part of what we have to live with and try to explain. Yeah. What about the label evangelical? Uh, We sometimes uh, talk, I think, in Canadian evangelical circles, some people think we should just, you know, drop the label because it's so problematic and confusing. Uh, Do you talk about that in your offices? We do talk about it, and that's probably the most frequently asked question that I get. To use um, an American example here, um, sometimes when I'm with people, I've done this in Chicago, I say, what is the second tallest building in the Western Hemisphere? And it's in the city of Chicago. And every time I've done this, even in Chicago, people have said it's the Sears Tower. Well, the Sears Tower hasn't been the Sears Tower for years and years and years. They changed their name to Willis when the building was sold. It's hard to change a name and a title. So I think more and more people that think that the word evangelical has been politicized are less likely to use the word. And it kind of depends because like among African-Americans, it's not a frequently used word. Instead, African-Americans would choose, many would choose to be called born again. So... You know, I want to hold to, as evangelicals, 
I tell people that uh, we take the Bible seriously and we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's who we are. And some of the other fringe stuff comes and goes. You mentioned the political edge. And in an interview with uh, Christianity Today, you had said that some people try to define evangelicals by politics. That's a big mistake. We're defined by our faith. And it seems to me, um, especially you know, in Canada, watching the news and the states and so on, that American evangelicals in particular have never been more defined by politics than they are right now. Can you speak to that? It feels like there's a whole bunch of landmines there for people. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's totally accurate about never being defined by politics before. This country has a long history of defining a lot of religion and politics together. But how we should define evangelicals is by our name, evangel. It's the gospel. It's a biblical word. But unfortunately, our biblical label has been co-opted as a political label. And you know the statistics on this, um, let me just ramble a moment on that. In, in the past, for example, um, there has been a high percentage of white evangelicals voting Republican, and they certainly did in the 2016 general election. But actually, it's uh, a majority of white Catholics and white Mormons also voted the same way, but it's been more associated with evangelicals. So, for example, in the 2016 election, the percentage of white evangelicals who voted Republican was up 3% over the previous general election in 2012. That's within the margin of error. So it's not a lot different than it previously was. So it kind of all depends on how pollsters choose to emphasize this and how pollsters are identifying evangelicals. There are some pollsters that use definitions that probably would not define me and a lot of other evangelicals. It's just the way they choose to do it. In Canada, I think the culture is so secular that if there is a sniff of religiosity around a politician, it tends to be, you know, a really deadly blow to them. They have to push back and against that. And, you know, sometimes it almost feels like they have to distance themselves from their faith or be very, very clear that their faith is not going to impact their politics. And I feel like that's a difference uh, between our two sort of cultures. What is it like in the States for that? I agree. I, I very much agree. So in the United States, religion is an understood part of the public square and public life. I think statistically, the United States has more people who would self-identify as Christians than any other nation in the world. And in the past, to have a religious identity has actually been a political asset, and it still is in many circles, but there are others who would reflect what you've described for Canada, and it is something from which they want to distance themselves. But in a polarized situation, if you distance yourself, then you lose out with somebody else. But clearly, religion is an important part of American life. It's kind of everywhere. You know, I would say that um, when I speak to uh, like Canadian evangelicals, sometimes people envy that actually, <laughs> like just the freedom to speak openly about your faith in a way that, um, I don't know, you don't have to be afraid of people's reactions so much. So it's it's interesting. It feels like it's a bit of a double-edged sword maybe. And it depends on where you are. We are a country of 50 states and the makeup 
differs from state to state. So I live in the state of Minnesota and we border Canada and we are traditionally perceived as a high tax and politically liberal state, but also a strong religious state. So church is a good word. Where I live, to be part of the church is a good thing. And it works here, but that's not the same elsewhere. Tell me about some of your travels and kind of your bird's eye view of um, evangelical churches in the States today. I, I know you've uh, spoken in other contexts about you know stopping in roadside restaurants and talking to people and just being really encouraged, actually, about what the church is doing across the States. I think we'd love to hear about some of that from you. Yeah, that's kind of a long list. So I find as I travel, I, I like to get off the big roads and go into small towns or out-of-the-way places in urban areas. I find there are new churches starting almost everywhere, in schools, in uh, taverns, in people's homes. There's a, sort of a wave of new churches. Many of them are immigrant churches. But there's something else, and that is we get a lot of news about tragedies, whether it is mass shootings or it is a weather event, a forest fire, people who face, to me, unspeakable, indescribable tragedies. And a news reporter goes up to them and puts a microphone in the face of someone who has never been on television before. And at least in my experience, a majority of times they talk about their faith how they're trusting God. They talk about their commitment to Jesus Christ. I've heard people describe the United States saying that our faith is 3,000 miles wide, but only an inch deep. And I would contend that when you scratch deep enough, you discover it's a lot deeper than an inch, and people of faith can be found everywhere. Yeah, that is really a beautiful thing to remember. Um, and I love the idea that you said about church being a good word and a good thing. Um, I think that is often not the case in our current cultural moment here. So that's very encouraging. Um, in terms of Christians being involved in the public square, that's something the EFC um encourages people to do always in a nonpartisan way. We're always very careful not to assume or direct, you know, toward any one of our particular political parties. And I wondered if you could give some insights about, you know, a healthy and good way for Christians to be involved in the public square. How do we speak well and with compassion when we talk to the issues of the day? Like you, at the NAE, we seek to be nonpartisan. So, for example, we don't name, we don't endorse candidates or political parties, and very, very rarely do we side with specific uh, legislation. And certainly Christians should engage in the public square. But in the United States, and it's somewhat different in Canada and significantly different in Europe and other parts of the world, the United States, we have essentially a two-party democracy, which means that those who run for office have got to get a partisan identification pretty quickly. There are some who run as independents. They are relatively few, and many of them, when they join a legislature, actually caucus with one of the parties. So in that context, how do we seek to be healthy and biblical and involved? Certainly to know the issues and to know the issues from multiple sources. There's always a danger that we are going to only get one view of whatever the current political or public square issue is. 
and then to speak to the issues, and I hope from a biblical perspective, to those who are in office, they need to hear from us. We should pray for them, and we should pray about the issues, and we should encourage other people to pray. And through all of this, as Christians, we treat other people with respect and with dignity, and I hope, or we should, always put faith above politics. As you see a younger generation of leaders coming up through the evangelical church in the States, or even in the NAE in particular, are you seeing the issues that they care about changing? Uh, are they more passionate about, passionate about different sorts of issues than you know the older generation might have been? I think that's an inevitable part of generational sociology. Among evangelicals, if we were to say, what are the top 10 issues? I think there would be broad agreement among ethnic groups and races and uh, some theological distinctions and generations. What's different, Karen, is there's a different rank order. So we have a younger generation that is more likely to put issues of justice and injustice at a higher ranking than people of an older generation. What's interesting is that currently evangelicals in the United States, we are holding our own numerically uh, among millennials and younger generations. Actually, there's a slight increase according to the general social survey. And most of the losses among uh, millennials and younger generations are losses among those who are nominal Christians, probably outside of the evangelical camp. So yeah, there are, there are indicators that uh, you can't, you know, can't always tell what the future is going to be. You usually can't, but the indicators are that there's going to be and is greater personal engagement, care and commitment for the poor and the marginalized, um, and figuring out about human sexuality in the church. That those are increasingly important issues among young adults. Do you think that uh, currently, <clears throat> pardon me, the evangelical church is uh, is doing a good job, kind of? Uh, stick handling, to use a hockey analogy, um, those issues to do, especially with sexuality, like they're so difficult and they're so complex and to respond compassionately and biblically seems tough sometimes. I'm, I'm wondering what you're seeing happening with some of those questions. We don't need to get into specifics, but just generally, how do you think the church is doing? In many ways, we're at the front end of the issue. And I know we can say that issues of human sexuality, of course, have been around for all of recorded history. However, some of these with uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and how all that relates to the church, we're at the front end of how that is all going to relate the church and the state. So how are churches doing? Some aren't addressing it at all. Others are really trying to tackle it head on to be faithful to scriptures, but also uh, gracious to people who differ. And figuring it out is not easy. It's going to take time. And do I think that the solution is going to happen at the end of this calendar year? I don't. I think that we're going to be dealing with figuring this out for an entire generation. When you uh, think about the next leader of the NAE, your uh, retirement date is coming up the end of this calendar year. And, you know, thinking about some of these difficult issues and the cultural moment we're in, what skills will that next leader need to have, do you think? 
Well, the next leader must uh, have experience and a track record. Uh, they're both really important, but both are about yesterday. So a lot of it has to do with being the kind of person who can understand what the issues are and then figure out what to do in the new and perhaps unexpected context. One day I was driving along and I had public radio on and I tuned in on a commencement speech at some university. I didn't hear who the speaker was. And I don't know what the university was. It must have been a major university and apparently of graduate students who were getting their uh, master's degrees in business administration. And the speaker said that one of the challenges of higher education is to equip students to be able to lead businesses that haven't been invented yet. And I thought that was a significant insight. And so what I want for my successor is to succeed. But the way to do that is to be the type of person, have the skills and the character to do what we can't anticipate. We can't predict what the issues are going to be in three and five and seven years from now. Leif, you were a pastor for many years before you uh, took up the leadership position at the NAE. I think listeners who are pastors would really value hearing from you um, some advice or words of encouragement for the next 10 or 20 years of ministry that they'll be facing. How do you lift the spirits of pastors that you visit? I've been a pastor most of my life and uh, was most of that time in, in a large church with broad variety of people. And as a pastor, remembering maybe the translation of the word into English is better than the pastor word is we're shepherds. So shepherds care for people. And you know, that that's what I've got to do as a pastor. When I preach, I've got to communicate the word of God, but it's always got to be in a context of caring for people. Uh, long ago, after I graduated from seminary, I read a book called Preaching as Counseling. It was a PhD dissertation analyzing the styles of uh, a leading liberal, uh, and that was Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he said that even though he preached to large crowds in New York City, that he had to set aside a day every week when he would just counsel people. He had to visit them in the hospital. He had to be in their homes. He had to be where they were in everyday life in order to preach well to a large congregation that would come on the weekend. So do I think pastors should be good preachers? Well, of course I do. But most of all, preachers need to be good pastors. We need to know and love people and care for them. And we need to remember that sheep bite and that sometimes it's a really hard job. Yeah, yeah. Did you miss being a pastor when you shifted over to the NAE? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. It's kind of nice not to be responsible for uh, everything that goes on in terms of staff and program and budget and all of that. And there are some ways in which I still do the same. So the NAE has uh, 40 member denominations and a very large number of organizations. And those who become the leaders of these organizations and denominations are those that I most relate to. And they kind of don't have anybody else to go to. They have people that come to them with questions and issues. But where do they go next? And I found that many of them come to me. So I have an opportunity from a lifetime of pastoral experience and lots of stories to tell uh, to be a shepherd, to be a pastor to them. And I count that a privilege. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, often, uh, as I'm, you well know, pastors don't have anyone to talk to, <clears throat> you know, really honestly. So that's such a gift uh, when that can happen. I'm wondering, <clears throat> pardon me, how your faith has been impacted or challenged or encouraged uh, through your, your years at, and work at the NAE. I've understood that there's enormous complexity to our world and to our generation. Uh, one of the definitions of complexity is multiple variables. And I, I, I would like for every situation to have a simple and straightforward answer. But then you discover that what is an answer for one person is a problem for another person. And that has given me a renewed trust in God that he understands all the variables. He gets all of the complexities and that there are a multitude of things that I will never figure out and that the church on earth will never solve. But we have a God that we can trust. Well, one of the things I think I pray about almost every day is gratitude for where I have seen God's grace in the past in impossible situations. And I feel guilty that I don't trust God to be as faithful to me in the future as I know he has been to me in the past. And I think that is, for me, a growing spiritual edge, that I understand that the God of yesterday's good is the God of tomorrow's promise. As he's been there before for me and for others, he's going to be there in the future for me and for everybody else. What are you reading right now or these days that encourages you? Is there an author that you turn to or a book that you've read that you would uh, recommend recently? I think people would love to know that. I wish I had a really good recommendation for you. One of the nature, one aspect of the nature of what I do is I read a lot of newspapers every day. So I, that's more newspapers than books. I also find that uh, part of the role that I have is I get a lot of manuscripts from people that want endorsements and reviews and the books aren't yet out. But what I typically read is things that are um, seeking to put a biblical perspective on what is happening in our generation, in our culture. And the other is uh, the Bible. And I know that's supposed to be the answer, but um, I, I try to read through the Bible every year. Don't always make it. And I find as many times as I read the Bible, there are new pieces to it that I don't ever remember the stories or reading them before. And they invigorate me. And sometimes they challenge my faith. And and also help feed that awareness you were talking about, about remembering what God has done in the past and what he can do in the future. I really like that. I'm wondering, uh, tell us what, what comes next for you, Leif. What's in the future for you? Yeah, I retire as the president of the National Association of Evangelicals at the end of this calendar year. And I don't know what's going to come next. I've found that God has always uh, provided a new path when coming to the end of an old one. There are some roles that I currently play and then will expand with World Vision. So starting in November, I will become a member of the board in what is called the Founders Chair of World Vision International, which is based in London. I already serve on the board of uh, World Vision U.S. And 
we'll continue doing the U.S. part, but add in the World Vision International, and that includes international travel and some other involvements with them. And, you know, I've signed up to do a university lectureship to do a little bit of preaching. It's a variety of things, but uh, not fully responsible for an organization. Yeah. And will you read less newspapers? Do you know, it's hard to give up addictions once you've acquired <laughs> them. Um, one of the things I've found, because I'm in a certain leadership role, is I feel like I need to be knowledgeable in everything that's going on in everybody. And I'd like to get over that. I'd like to sort of, at the end of the day, just find out the big news on television. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.